0: Hi, this is Ella Whelan, and just before we get into this week's Spike podcast, I wanted to tell you about something that's happening in eight days' time. The Battle of Ideas Festival is taking place at the Barbican in central London on the 2nd and 3rd of November. Uh, This year, I'm the co-convener of the festival. I can tell you that it's one not to be missed. If you're interested in public debate on everything from feminism to free speech, the economy, education, a Green New Deal, you name it, we've got a debate on it. So get your tickets at battleofideas.org uk and come join us on the second and third of november and now on with the show
1: hello and welcome to the spike podcast i'm fraser myers and back with me this week we have spike's deputy editor tom slater hello and spike columnist ella whelan hi coming up on the show brexit russian assets and the canadian balls waxing controversy
0: the last 24 hours made a UK election more likely? We certainly know that Boris Johnson has his eye on one. This
1: Parliament has been sitting now uh, doing absolutely nothing but delay. They now have to commit to
2: an election on December. The so Boris Johnson has twice asked for a general election before and twice he hasn't got one. Now will it be third time lucky? Take no deal
1: off the table and we absolutely support an election. Boris Johnson says he wants a general election in December to break the Brexit deadlock, but will the other parties let that happen? Labour has suggested they will block any election until no deal is taken off the table, and some MPs are keen to hear from the EU as to whether it will grant a Brexit extension and for how long. Meanwhile, the EU wants MPs to call an election before it decides on an extension. Tom, what's going on exactly?
2: Well, we're recording this on Thursday night. It's not really clear how all this is going, to, is going to shake out yet, but it, it does underline what a kind of weird Kafkaesque situation we found ourselves in. Mm. You know, we've got a parliament um, and an opposition which has been going around saying that um, Boris Johnson is, you know, a threat to all that is good and decent, yet is seemingly still prevaricating on the question of whether or not it wants to go to an election um mixed reasons some of which because they want him to just sweat it out a bit more and kind of embarrass himself and some particularly a lot of people in labor because they fear an election they've got one eye on the polls and don't think they're going to come out right from it i mean it feels like labor can't resist an election very much longer than this but given Mm. that there's so much propensity for just can kicking and putting off in parliament who knows where we'll be at but I think what this entire week really has shown you know from from Super Saturday that wasn't onwards where again MPs just voted to delay again all of the kind of shenanigans we've seen in parliament this week is you know whether an election is in December or early next year or whenever we do really badly need one because as Brendan pointed out on Spike this week this Parliament is not necessarily just out of touch at this point. It's increasingly illegitimate. It has no mandate for the kind of things that it's doing, yet at the same time seems um, very nervous to even try to seek one. So I think whatever happens in the next couple of days, I think people have just got to push harder and harder for the public to be brought back on this through a general election because I think that's what we so obviously need at this point. Ella?
0: Well, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you really are longing for a general election because of the fact that really we haven't, as voters, had a voice in this for what feels like a decade, mm. but um, has been two years. Uh, at the same time, the the fact is that parliamentarians are definitely are going to have to be forced into having an election because they're scared of a public vote. But what will those positions be within the parties if a general election comes? Because I'm sort of now <laughs> fearful of the fact that we'll have a position in which it's... Boris Johnson's deal being pushed by the Tory party and no Brexit by the Remain parties now, you know, the Labour Party or um, complete revocation of Article 50 by um, the Lib Dems. And so uh, we're back in this kind of, (laughs) I think Brexiteers have found themselves back in this position in which really nothing feels completely satisfactory. And it's sort of been an eye-opening week, I think, for me and others, in that you sort of have to realise that the idea of, leaving the European Union and Brexit has sort of had the kick taken out of it. Mm. or It's not what we thought it was going to be. It's not what we hoped it's going to be. It's going to be at the very, very, very best now, some kind of a fudge. But I think the positive thing is that it's opened up a space for us to have a much bigger discussion about what Brexit means in British politics. And therefore, a general election really would be an exciting opportunity because I think part of... The problem is that politicians have had such an easy ride. They keep whinging, but they've had such an easy ride for the last three years in terms of they just really haven't had a huge amount of scrutiny. They've been able to bandy together. They've been able to hide behind the doors of Westminster. Um, and so I think that a general election could be quite volatile, actually, and mm. could be uh, could throw up some really interesting things in terms of outlier parties like the Brexit party, but also just... Uh, hopefully, an opportunity for people to really give politicians a kicking, Uh, perhaps as well, even including the Tory party, because I don't think they should be given an easy ride if all they try to do is push through this really quite crap, you know, dressed up version of um, the deal that we've seen many times before.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. And, And I guess one of the most depressing features of British politics is the safe seat phenomenon and you know that there are you know some mps that really really deserve a kicking that are you know come what may it's just not going to to happen but i suppose the best thing about um an election is that it clears so much it will it almost inevitably clear so much of the dead wood that has um you know, been hopping from party to party that has, um particularly those who have switched parties and become independent, or the, you know, the Tory MPs that have had the whip withdrawn, let's hope that that <laughs> stays the case um between now and an election, because they really be- have been holding up um the process. And, you know, I really agree with you on um Boris's deal. And I, th- I think that that's, um, you know, something we need to, we need to talk about and make clear that this is not um a particularly good deal it is ninety five percent theresa may's deal you know five percent tweaks possibly in a better direction than before but it's it's still not the clean brexit that um that we want and and one of the things that really worried me in particular about the the deal is is seeing who um supported it even tentatively um, earlier this week. You know, you had people like well-known Brexit wreckers like Philip Hammond and Amber Rudd and Nicholas Soames queuing up to, um, you know, sign up to this deal. But then, of course, as, as we know, they also embraced um, a delay to Brexit, leaving open the possibility that there'll be all kinds of wrecking amendments, particularly, particularly worrying our, you know, potential amendments on the customs union, second referendums could be a possibility. And so, you know, we are back again in this kind of mm. parliamentary morass. Hopefully the election is, is maybe the opportunity to kick start the process again and put a bit of life back into it. Mm. I mean,
2: uh, in a way, I was kind of less surprised to see people like the Nicholas Soameses or the Amber Rudds of this world support Boris Johnson's deal and more surprised that so many, you know, erstwhile quite principled brexiteers kind of fall in line behind it i mean it's one thing to say this is the best we're possibly going to get we're going to have to swallow it you know this parliament even this political class in any <laughs> kind of formulation will not back anything any harder than this um there was actually just a kind of response from kind of tory brexit boris fanboys as if this was the greatest deal of all time and i yeah. think the naivety that they've um displayed has been pretty remarkable because it's not just a case of the end indiv- it's pu- obviously it's partly a case of the kind of so much of May's deals remaining, so many of the aspects within it, which were um, incredibly bad from a sovereignty perspective being maintained, um, which there's already been a lot of discussion of. But the point that John Holbrook made on Spites this mm. week is also, that stuff aside, there's also a huge kind of strategic question that um, passing any version of this withdrawal agreement, this withdrawal treaty actually poses, which is the fact that we'll go into this transition period, during which time we'll be effectively ruled by the European Union and all in all kinds of ways, with no vote and no veto, and all the rest of it, um, and then we go into trade talks in which we've already given up any leverage we might have had because we've already paid this exorbitant divorce bill. Mm-hmm. Um, that effectively, we're then going to be a situation where, where whoever's leading the g- negotiations, if we get to that point, will have the choice between giving up even more sovereignty or actually just, you know, leaving on WTO terms. Which I think is made clear none of them are prepared to actually do and just <laughs> yeah. stomach. And so, on that kind of um, the strategic implications of it, point to. A further sellout of sovereignty down the line. Now, as you say, there's good things in it. Obviously, the UK wide backstop is gone. The idea that that kind of customs partnership, as it Mm. envisaged um, being actually the basis for the future agreement, that's gone along with it. Um, The um, pledge to keep in line with the EU on so called level playing field rules, you know, from state aid through to environmental and consumer and labour protections, that has been moved from the withdrawal agreement, which is obviously binding, to the political declaration, which isn't quite as binding. But nevertheless, a Again, it comes down to that point of the kind of negotiating position we will be in mm. um it's important to remember that political declaration isn 't meaningless; it does have um legal standing, and what is down in it is still something that could be um is something which is still very likely to be worked into some kind of future agreement, but also we'll be arguing from a position of incredible weakness, and the likelihood that we will sign up to have those vast waves of economic and social policies effectively be handed down to us from Brussels is pretty high so I think there's no good options in all of this, especially in the immediate term. But at the same time, I think it would be better if people were at least on, at least kind of honest with themselves about it what what it was that they were swallowing in all of this.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's right. I think there are far too many levers, um, too willing to accept second best on this. And you know, it's an improvement on May's deal, but an improvement from a very very low base. And, you know, we should really be aiming for the best kind of deal, the best kind of arrangement, the arrangements that give us the most freedom and most um, you know democratic outcome, not this deal. I
0: also think you have to show some sympathy with the fact that people really want this over with. Mm. And it's very true that if you have been starved for... Three years, three and a half years, and uh, you know it's tempting to eat anything that's put in front of you, um, but you have to kind of resist that and be very skeptical of any kind of attempt to suggest that this is brexit, as you say I mean part of the issue as well as that's it's just infuriating is that this deal is actually being labeled by anti brexit politicians as a catastrophically hard Brexit, yeah. as extreme. And you think, in what world is that the case? Mm. But yet that it, this is what they've done time and time again, shifted the goalposts, completely inverted the meaning, completely misconstrued things. I mean, talk about fake news. This is crazy to suggest that this deal is a kind of representative of a hard Brexit. But here we are, and this is the, the situation we're in. I mean, one thing that I've found remarkable has been this uh, tactic by anti-Brexit politicians to suggest that this delay is simply about due process, Mm. is simply about just doing the job properly. You know, we're very sensible here. We understand that this is very complicated and we need to... I mean, bullshit, that's such a load of rubbish.
2: It's a depressing point to return to, but I think it does also come down to that question of, you know, people can be right and wrong at the same time in all of this. There is a huge danger of of MPs, as well as, you know, a a weary general public being bounced into the position of just kind of accepting a a pretty poor and non brexity deal shall we say but at the same time the people making that argument uh, <laughs> most full-throatedly um obviously just don't want it to happen in the first place but I think it comes down to that point of get Brexit done has mm. been the big slogan of the Tories. It was what was, you know, all over their holdings at party conference. It's almost certainly going to be the slogan going into a general election if the withdrawal agreement hasn't been ratified before then. But I think whilst I can understand why that message resonates, I think what the last week in particular has shown that Brexit and whatever form of it we may be allowed to have at the end of this um, <laughs> process in the short and medium term is the fact that Brexit isn't the case of just getting this this specific policy over the line, if you like. Not just because, as loads of people like to point out, this is only the first stage and we've still got trade talks to go, on a more deeper, kind of profound level. Yeah. This is about um, reclaiming politics, not just from Brussels, but from a political class who are clearly um, as anti-democratic as as the, the bureaucrats in in the Commission. So I think whilst, it's like so many people in this country, who really want to get this over the line, it's, it's more clear now than it has been for a while that this really is only just beginning.
1: You're listening to the Spiked podcast. Spiked has no subscriptions and no paywalls. All of our content is free. We rely on the generosity of our listeners and readers to keep us going and growing. For those of you who already donate to Spiked, we can't thank you enough. It really means a lot to the team. If you haven't already, then why not consider giving Spiked a donation? You can make a one-off payment or give monthly by going to spiked-online.com. Failed presidential candidate Hillary Clinton is worried about the Russians again. I think they've got their eye on somebody who is currently in the Democratic primary and are grooming her to be a third-party candidate, said Clinton. She's the favourite of the Russians. Clinton is widely assumed to be talking about Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard. After that, Clinton went on to describe Green Party candidate Jill Stein as a Russian asset. And of course, she labelled Donald Trump as a Russian asset, saying, I don't know what Putin has on him. Whether it's both personal and financial, I assume it is. So, Tom, um, has Hillary finally lost the plot? Or if she didn't lose it a long time ago? <laughs> no, exactly. I
2: think she did lose it a long time ago. I think it's remarkable that after. Russiagate, and after this grand conspiracy theory that um, Trump's election in 2016 was um, not down to the fact that they had a uniquely unpopular candidate in Hillary Clinton, someone incredibly tin eared, a mm. perfect represent- representation of the establishment pitted against this kind of insurgent underdog. Um, that it wasn't anything to do with her, that it was all part of this kind of grand conspiracy um, hatched in the Kremlin in order to get him into office. The fact that even after the the Mueller inquiry, finding a lot of bad stuff, but certainly not finding that to be true, there's been so little soul searching, both on her part as well as the broader um, media in the US. And the fact that if anything, this conviction seems stronger than ever. And you've got to look at what she's talking about here. She's not even just talking about, especially with that comment on Trump, the fact that maybe Russia would like to see him there because they preferred him as a candidate because they thought it would be better for their interest but actually that he's under their control you know <laughs> this is the kind of most purified version of that kind of conspiracy theory and it's the most in- incredibly uh- nasty mccarthy kind of atmosphere to be throwing around this accusation almost at anyone who disagrees with them. When the Russian asset th- thing is effectively calling someone treasonous, yeah. you know, that's really what they're trying to suggest. In a PC way. It's the PC way of saying, um, saying someone's a traitor. And yet at the same time, who are they angling this at? Someone like Tulsi Gabbard, who obviously disagrees with them on mm. questions of military intervention and all kinds of other policies, but is polling at single digits in the democratic presidential race at this point. The, the, you know, the glee with which they throw around these kinds of accusations is remarkable it's also quite striking how after rushgate there were a lot of people just trying to pretend it never happened yeah and even now trying to make excuses for the people who really um, jumped in at in on it with both feet. Matt Taibbi wrote a great piece for Rolling Stone on this, pointing out that Brian Stelter on CNN um, Reliable Sources seemed to suggest at one point that maybe Hillary, in suggesting that Gabard was a Russian asset, was responding to Russian misinformation (laughs) suggesting Gabard was a Russian (laughs) asset. And that's become a kind of recurring theme in all of this. But I think it just, the point it goes back to is the fact that so many people, particularly in the democratic establishment, still haven't come to terms with the very simple reality of 2016, which is that people were sick to death of them as some up by Hillary Clinton, they wanted something different, and that they'll cling to the most mad conspiracy theories just to stop themselves from entertaining that.
1: I mean, it, it's it's almost reached another level in terms of Tulsi Gabbard in the in the insanity of it. As you say, she's polling single digits. She even um, at one point she didn't even poll enough to um, make one of the debates. And. But really, you know, from our point of view, she's quite a good candidate because she's, um, you know, she's she's very much anti-war. She's anti-woke. All that, you know, ticks all the right boxes. But the the level of vitriol that she's been subjected to by, you know, the liberal establishment has been crazy. You get like the New York Times quoting so-called disinformation experts saying that her behaviour is very suspicious. Not that she has a different opinion, but her behaviour is actively suspicious. You know, the headline was, what is Tulsi Gabbard up to? (laughs) Um, A former spy said she was the Kremlin's preferred Democrat. um, The Daily Beast claim that she was being boosted by Putin apologist. One of the best things about this whole saga has been Tulsi Gabbard hitting back uh, um, Hillary Clinton and this accusation. And, you know, she called Clinton the queen of the the warmongers. But in response to that, someone from MSNBC noticed that she didn't actually deny being a Russian asset in that video. And therefore, that might itself be evidence that, um, you know, Tulsi is under the thumb of of Russians. And, you know, just to give an idea of the extent to the the madness of this. Um, there's a journalist called Caitlin Johnston, and she gave us an excellent tip, and I, and I recommend anyone try this. Type the words Kremlin talking point into Twitter and see the kind of stuff that comes up. So some of the Kremlin talking points uh, range from basically any criticism of US foreign policy, criticising John McCain, criticising Nancy Pelosi. So basically any dis- dislike of a, a centrist and... I'm going to read one to you because it's so crazy. This is from a comedian whose specials are on Netflix. The anti-Pelosi stuff isn't you being a free-thinking, young or middle-aged revolutionary. It's a Kremlin-created talking point. This is the kind of mental rot that we're seeing
0: here. It's it's actually remarkable how, even though they go on and on about how much they hate Trump, the Democrats are being particularly Trumpian at the Hmm. moment, Um, both in their obsession with the idea of this conspiracy theory. I mean, the resistance, if you look on Twitter, use words like, Russia denialist you mm. know you are a Russia denialist if you don't accept that Putin is pulling all of the strings in US politics um and then as that rolling stones um piece points out there's echoes of the kind of uh anti foreigner uh, attitudes that were used in previous campaigns so in the early 2000s um when the republicans were calling everyone a Saddam lover mm. who didn't get on board with the war on terror today it's the same, but flipped, so you you're a Putin stooge if you don't accept that everything disagreeable that Trump does or every everyone who doesn't agree with the kind of establishment democrat line is in the pocket of russia i mean it's completely ridiculous, but the the uh, rather than just laugh at it i mean it it could be quite dangerous because yeah. if you want to have four more years of Trump, this is the way to go because this is like catnip to his mm. base. Cause what it says is, is, it's an advertisement for the fact that the Democrats are unhinged. Yeah. Uh, and you can even see that in the fact that, I mean, reports out a few days ago that Hillary Clinton told a uh, uh, private audience that she would step up to uh, as a candidate in 2020 if she thought she could win I mean (laughs) as opposed to stepping up again when she knew she'd lose but this is just ridiculous I mean it's like they're stuck on Groundhog Day or something they can't move past the concept of either Trump being uh, a a, you know woman abuser rapist or Trump being a Russian stooge or any of these kind of ridiculous conspiracy theories they can't move past it to the extent to which there's now even some mild suggestion that they'd bring back clinton mm. the like the worst thing that ever happened to the democrats in recent history it's quite mad.
1: Um, one thing that I really agree with you on is that it, it's dangerous, um, not only because it licenses authoritarianism in the United States. I mean, the fact is that you know, the, basically, the call for the security services to be involved in basically every aspect of the election, which really shockingly they are now. If you t- if you turn on MSNBC or CNN, they always are asking panels of um, ex spies and and stuff about about their views on politics, which is really strange. But also that it you know gives license to authoritarianism authoritarianism abroad. The biggest worry is not Kremlin talking points, but Washington talking points because those then get repackaged by genuinely authoritarian leaders across the world and Putin is a classic example. The fake news panic about Donald Trump then gets recycled over in russia he has he 's passed a new fake news law, which basically you know can be used against any reasonable journalist and and Of course, when there are protests against um putin in in Moscow as had been happening a, a few months ago those are just dismissed as foreign meddling oh it's the united states oh it's the cia causing this so really you know people who are throwing around this this russia accusation willy-nilly really need to you know take a look at themselves they are ironically the ones boosting authoritarianism
2: and it's also they're just lying that's the other thing you know the interesting (laughs) thing about someone like tulsi gabbard is if you you know just read a few kind of headlines you might think to yourself oh it's quite a controversial (laughs) character so allegedly she's some sort of russian stooge which again just comes down to completely baseless you know know theories in the debate a couple of months ago Mm. where she just completely leveled kamala harris you know on her record as attorney general in california um she was suddenly getting a lot of pick up on the internet a lot of people were tweeting about her and everyone was like beware the russian bots (laughs) boosted on the basis of no evidence whatsoever there's this claim that she's a sad apologist which Mm. is seemingly based on the fact she went on a fact-finding mission to syria a few years ago ended up meeting assad and since then um has effectively called for peace in the region and has called co- and has called the um opposition to him um has referred to there being terrorists and jihadists in the ranks of that which is factually true we yeah. all know that you know the the free syrian army that the us in fact you know backed was turned out to be filled with a lot of incredibly dodgy characters um and again there's kind of attempts to smear her on the basis that because she's um been you know somewhat kind of embraced by kind of far right trolls on some basis just because she said one criticism of israel which is hardly unlikely you know in mainstream politics that people are trying to suggest that she's like you know a couple of degrees separated from david Duke. you know Mm. it's it's just it's completely incredible and i think coming back to the fact this is a candidate who has you said fraser is actually you know good on many respects but it's still someone who's you know really at the back of that um at the back of the pack insofar as how she's polling and how she's getting on. The amount that they will throw at someone just like that just because they disagree with them and just because they're really um, hitting them where it hurts on a lot of key policy points I think is very, very worrying for the kind of openness of the the kind of state of political debate in the US at the moment and for demonstrating how much the um, political establishment has paid any heed whatsoever to the lessons of 2016.
1: You're listening to The Spike Podcast. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. If you get this podcast on iTunes, why not give us a rating and a review? It really helps new listeners find the show. The Canadian balls-waxing controversy has finally come to an end. Over a year ago, a man at the time called Jonathan Yaniv contacted beauticians in British Columbia asking them to wax his balls. These beauticians only worked with women. And so when they refused, he took them to court. This week, a human rights tribunal has ruled against Yaniv, who now calls himself Jessica. The court found that Yaniv had improper motive for bringing the cases and had deliberately targeted ethnic minorities to extort money from them. This has to be one of the craziest stories of the year, Ella. Do you want to tell us a bit more about it?
0: Uh, Yeah. So this is like the sort of more salacious version of the gay cake um, case, really. (laughs) Um, And uh, in some respects, it's funny because it involves waxing bullsacks. Um, But actually, from the perspective of the women and the beauticians that Yaniv targeted for these cases, it's not funny at all. Mm. Um, Just to kind of look at the kind of people that he was... Involved in trying to prosecute. One was an immigrant mother who had her business um, waxing people out of her home. And so she had a rule that she only took in women to do that. Two of the people involved, two of the women involved have um, lost their jobs, have had to stop working, are kind of suffering under the fact of being called transphobes because they will only wax women. And one person was a, a Sikh woman who decided that she only wanted to be involved with women clients on the basis of her religious beliefs. Hmm. So you have to have a huge amount of sympathy for the women dragged into this who are, you know, don't have a political stake in this, just want to get on and do their job and have certain rules around their jobs. And it's really unfair that they were, um, have to be dragged through this. The interesting thing is about how much space and how much room, and how much time Yaniv was given, and actually how seriously this was taken because. Yeah. Of the outset, I mean, (laughs) I don't know what our listeners are like, but I know and lots of people know that you can get your balls waxed as a man. It's not (laughs) out of this world. And actually, in 2019, there's plenty of places that you can do that. It's a whole different thing. Somebody who obviously has an axe to grind, targeting people, as the case proved, targeting people that both he knew were going to say no to him or her, yeah. um, and trying to extort money from them. So this was really quite an exploitative situation. The bigger question it brings up is the debate around trans and inclusivity of trans people has become so incredibly toxic that you end up with uh, case bizarre cases like this characterising the debate because the truth is most trans individuals do not go out of their way to try and upset people. Mm. Do not want to rock the boat to such an extent that they're trying to extort money out of people. It's mad. And yet we are all the time focusing on these things and it's having a wider effect. So just look at what's happened in relation to this, another bizarre story. Um, The fact that Always, which is a company that produces um, sanitary pads, um, has done for many, many years, um, has... Off the back of a few kind of complaints via Twitter, decided to remove the female symbol from the packaging of its sanitary pads. Mm-hmm. You know, it, acquiescing to the idea that periods have to be inclusive to men as well as women. So we can laugh at cases like yan if we can say thankfully that this one got shot down. But the truth is that the intolerance around the trans debate, intolerance in that everyone has to swallow this idea that you accept self ID people without question, no matter mm-hmm. the circumstance is having a very real effect.
2: I don't think just, for a second on the kind of balls waxing thing in particular I thought it was interesting that actually part of the case hinged on the fact that it's actually quite dangerous for the person receive, receiving the wax if the person doing it isn't trained and apparently that was actually part of the expert advice. The welfare it of uh, Jessica <laughs> and Eve shouldn't, uh, shouldn't be taken for granted. No, I mean it's a ridiculous ridiculous story as you say. I think it's worth um, again drawing out the nastiness of this individual because it's pretty mm. clear that he actually targeted these women in particular because they were um, largely from migrant and ethnic minority yeah. backgrounds working out of their own homes he seems to have had some particular Had previously said in statements talking about the immigrants around here being kind of dirty and dishonest and part of the argument in the case in the course of these proceedings was that on religious grounds they were being intolerant towards him because he was transgender and all the rest of it. this is really really kind of nasty stuff i think on the point of um this being a um you know, this obviously not being representative of trans people, I think is it definitely important to say. Um, I think the only thing is I think you see in some of the reaction or at least the lack of reaction for the more woke but nevertheless, you know, sensible people in relation to this case, to the extent that they have talked about it at all, they've said, well the only reason loads of people are talking about this is because it's the turf agenda, it allows you mm. to present all you know, all trans people as just perverts and freaks and would be sexual assaulters and all the rest of it. And I think the thing to bear in mind about cases like this is when you swallow wholesale the kind of gender ideology you create space for those minor, tiny minorities within a tiny minority who are going to just exploit this stuff yeah. to operate if you allow common sense to break down to such a degree that not only do you allow avenues for people like you to you know effectively hound women um, who refuse to wax his balls but when people try to discuss it on twitter and you've got you know lindsey shepherd or megan murphy having their account shut down in megan murphy's case permanently because she misgendered you need, you do exacerbate those cases you Mm. know by by allowing kind of common sense to be entirely crowded out it's not to say that it just doesn't the problem with this is that it doesn't allow us to talk about how all trans people are freaks that's not it whatsoever it's just that you allow space um for those individuals who do want to kind of exploit that complete breakdown in common sense to their own, in this case, extortionate ends, um, to operate and to be able to do that stuff and to, on some level, be guarded from criticism. All that being said, in this case, it's good to see that, you know, common sense and reason (laughs) prevailed in the end. I mean, it'd be unthinkable. I would like to think that it would have gone either way. But I think it does speak to the fact that our confusion around these issues and our willingness to kind of go along with... um, this agenda in all circumstances, even at the expense of our own better instincts, this shows us where you can end up sometimes.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's right. It's it's the, you know, Yaniv should be a sad loser, bedroom bound loser with you know whatever problems he has. You know, and he clearly does have a lot of problems. Um, making you know lots of racist remarks, making um, some very suspect remarks about you know young girls and wanting to go into changing rooms. You know, in in a sensible world. these things would be confined to his head. But unfortunately, you know, the kind of uncritical acceptance of the trans ideology with no exceptions, no um, thinking, seems to have empowered him to, you know, take quite destructive actions.
0: I think this is the sad point in all of this, in that in, uh, you know, moving forward, what most of us who are sensible and decent want to see is uh, a world which is accepting of people. And actually the reality is day to day, most people, uh, especially if you're living somewhere like London, where you see all types of shapes and sizes of people Mm. get on with it and really don't have a problem with it. And people work these things out themselves. And, you know, when a trans person wants to use a toilet and, uh, you know, people have discussions about it, it it sort of all happens. Generally that people do tolerate each other because... Mm. (laughs) Humanity is generally good. Um, And so it's a shame that these kind of things go to court and are uh, in that process then turned into these very fractious, you know, when the discussion about them on social media turned into these very fractious situations. I'm afraid the blame for all of this does mostly lie at the feet of extreme trans activists, because what's happening is with their complete intolerance of being able to have a discussion about this, you know, a sensible discussion that says, hang on a minute, do we really want to live in a world in which a woman is forced to handle man's genitalia mm. you know where was the whole kind of panic about the hashtag me too and all of this stuff in yeah. relation to this it's it's like quite remarkable that that hasn't come up and yet you want to have a situation in which somebody who has an eccentric desire can be met within the realms of reason so mm. if a trans woman does want to have a wax then they should be able to get that at some specialist salon, if needs be, whatever. The problem is, you have this; uh, these debates take place in this kind of vacuum where you're either called, um, you, know, you know, a transphobe or a turf or an abuser or a pervert, and nothing sensible comes out of it. Um, I think the plea would be that these kind of discussions happen just amongst people in an everyday format and that actually you know really authorities should try not to get involved in these situations because i think it only really makes it worse
1: thank you for listening to the spike podcast we'll be back next week and in the meantime for more great spike content or to make a donation just visit spikes onlinecom